Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 94, The Empty Throne. So, if you missed last week's episode on Patreon, here is the gist of it. Richard never made it to Jerusalem. Like a medieval Moses, he came close enough to see the walls, but never went in. Salah ad-Din too, never completed his jihad and was unable to decisively beat back the Franks. And so, a peace treaty was signed, where Jerusalem stayed in Muslim hands but the Frankish kingdom of Jerusalem continued to exist based on the coastal cities that Richard had conquered. A kingdom that will continue to exist for another hundred years or so and will manage to get back Jerusalem within a generation. For us, so, that was the end of the crusading detour. There will be a lot of crusades left, but we will only talk about the couple of them that end up directly targeting Egypt. Also, that Patreon episode saw the end of Salah ad-Din's reign, where he died within six months after the peace was reached, leaving 15 adult male children plus a very powerful and involved extended family. Al-Adil, for example, his younger brother, was the architect of the peace treaty with the Franks and operated with a wide degree of independence. And so, had Salah ad-Din ignored succession, a crisis on his death may have been disastrous. But he didn't. Quite aware of his mortality, he made elaborate plans to divide his vast empire among his children and family, with the oldest son being the first among equals, hoping that each man would be happy with his share and a transition after his death peaceful. Alasso, like him, his sons and family proved to be highly ambitious and always looking to add to their domains, mostly fighting each other. After all, it was Salah ad-Din himself who left Egypt to go and conquer Syria when his benefactor Nur ad-Din died. So why would his sons and brothers be any different? You see, when a sultan died, the division of the empire that he planned was quite rational and organized. A young and inexperienced prince was made ruler over Egypt and Jerusalem. Another young prince was made ruler over Aleppo in northern Syria. And in between them, Al-Afdal, his oldest, 
was made to rule over Damascus as the Sultan. So, the weakest and least experienced of his sons was in Egypt, where its resources and stability were meant to even out the disadvantage. Similarly, Central Syria was quite difficult to govern, especially with the Crusader state next door, and so it made sense that the Sultan is based there. Not to mention, from there, he could quote-unquote supervise Egypt and northern Syria easily from his central location. And finally, to close the loop, Al-Adil, the experienced brother of Salah al-Din, and by far the most dangerous and respected political force of his day, was given the territories of the empire in Iraq, relatively isolated from the action, as to protect Salah al-Din's children. So, so far, very good in Syria to keep things stable. But the never-satisfied nature of man would quickly break that theory. You see, one faction that was not represented in that neat arrangement was the emirs of the large army that have been fighting for two decades now. Hardened Mamluks, who campaigned almost every year. They could not rest easy and became a destabilizing force that could be wielded to break that neat arrangement. And so, within a year, the guy in charge of Egypt was manipulated into attacking his brother next door in Damascus by these factions. Fast forward five years of on and off civil war, the other brother in Aleppo got involved, and Al-Adil, their uncle, was playing them against each other like a puppet master. By 1200 AD, seven years after the death of Salah al-Din, Al-Adil had managed to eliminate the three brothers altogether and rule alone as the Sultan, more or less in the same territories that Salah al-Din controlled. So, so much for planned successions. Anyway, what matters for us is not really what Al-Adil did or how he took the Sultanate. Rather, what was going on in Egypt when he did? Seven years of instability on the top had caused a lot of damage. And so, as was the pattern, the Nile did not flood normally in one year in 1200 AD. And immediately, a very bad famine took hold crippling the population growth of Egypt. In the same manner, to fix similar problems all over the empire, Al-Adil was constantly touring his domains, consolidating the Sultan authority and putting down small fires, while Egypt was left in the capable hand of his son and heir apparent, Al-Kamil, a pragmatic ruler who, among many things, had a conversation or two with St. Francis of Assisi on the merits of converting to Christianity. What was St. Francis doing in Egypt, trying to convert the Sultan to Christianity? We will get there next week. For now so, since it has been long since we last checked with the Coptic Patriarchy, I would like to catch us up with the latest development there. Despite all the wars and economic pressure that it brought, the situation of the Copts toward the end of Salah al-Din's reign was actually pretty good before the few years of instability and famine brought by the prolonged succession struggle. Salah al-Din often granted large fiefs of land to his army emirs, often Mamluks with limited literacy, who employed a professional class of scribes and administrators 
to oversee their accounts. That professional class was largely Coptic. In turn, some of their earning went to the church, which, shepherded by the capable hands of Mark, used these resources for sustainable and reasonable projects. The only thing that was worth mentioning in his long 22-year reign was the Marcus Ibn al-Kumbur theological adventures. And even then, it was handled reasonably well, and could have died quietly, if it wasn't for another issue bringing it up, way after Mark's time. And so, when Mark died in 1189, four years before Salah al-Din, the transition was as smooth as you can get. Usana Mons, a wealthy and respected merchant from Cairo named Meshd ibn Sawiris, in the mold of Mark, was picked as the next patriarch and renamed Pope John VI. John, before his election, was quite successful as a businessman, where he undertook several trips as far as India, and in the process rose to the upper echelons of an elite trading guild that held an immense amount of financial and political power. Medieval trading guilds are a rabbit hole and a bit outside of our scope, but just know that John had a lot of political connections and weight, beyond what you would expect from a typical merchant. Also, as a patriarch, who continued to operate a sugar factory, among other property and businesses, producing somewhat of a passive income during his patriarchy that was used to partially finance the church expenses. So yeah, John was neither your typical patriarch or just another average well-to-do cop. No, he was truly an elite of the merchant class that developed alongside the Ayyubid's empire. His reign, like Mark before him, was long and mostly prosperous, penetrated by a few incidents of note. First, it will see the first crusade that was directed exclusively against Egypt. This, as you would expect, ratcheted up the hostilities against the Christian, with yet another wave of conversion. More on that crusade next week, since it has a lengthy narrative that would not fit today. But as the wave of conversion goes, we are told of two converts of that period that can serve as an illustration of how these things went. The first one was a monk who converted to Islam and ended up being a tax administrator living comfortably in a small city in rural Egypt. After a while, so he regretted his decision and wanted to go back to the monastery. To do this, he had to go to Al-Kamil himself, where he went with his burial clothes and told him, quote, these are my burial clothes. Kill me or give me back my religion. Al-Kamil, the heir of the Sultan, so pretty high up the chain of the Ayyubids, had no wish to kill folks for apostasy. And so, he told the convert that he can go back to being a Christian and guaranteed his protection. What he failed to see so, that now he was setting a precedence for allowing apostasy a very dangerous precedence. And so, as the monk's story spread, another convert did the same, only not going to Al-Kamil, rather all the way to the Sultan, his father Al-Adil, 
and told him, quote, Give back to me my religion, as your son Al-Malik Al-Kamil gave back to the monk his religion, and wrote for him that no one should oppose him. Al-Adil, a veteran of the crusade, and more sensitive to the opinion of the religious imams on the subject, which for the record was clear-cut and undebatable, it was a crime punishable by death, ordered that the convert, quote, be delivered to the governor of Cairo, and that he should inflict punishment upon him until he died or renewed his Islam. The convert renewed his Islam. Al-Kamil, for his part, not wishing to fight his father on the issue, sent for the monk and gave him the same choice. Go back to Islam or die. The monk chose to go back to Islam. Conversions in medieval Egypt is a fraught subject, and it can get very complicated, especially if one wishes to generalize. But yeah, there seemed to have been a definitive shift, starting with the Ayyubids and how these things work. Take for example, the monk. Even when he went back to Islam, there were constant pressures about the sincerity of his Islam, and so he ended up harassing the local monastery over their altar vessels and their value, just to prove to the local community that he was really a Muslim. Similarly, another convert in the reign of Sean was previously a well-known deacon in Alexandria. He was dragged to Al-Kamil court in Cairo and asked to translate Coptic phrases as an exercise to prove the sincerity of his conversion. Alongside conversions, one notable event during Jean's reign was the famine between 1200 and 1202 that we mentioned earlier, just as Al-Kamil was settling in. That famine not just straight up halted the continuous population growth as people died from hunger, but it also initiated a mass migration event, where many Coptic families left their traditional home villages to go settle in Syria or larger cities. This also disturbed previously fully Christian villages, which made future conversion waves a lot easier to take place. And lastly, on the topic of Jean's reign, as the other great patriarchs before him, he had a healthy connection with Ethiopia, ordaining a metropolitan for them, where, through a fascinating story of palace intrigue, that relationship almost collapsed before Jean intervened for a second time, removing that metropolitan and ordaining another one. You see, we are told that initially the metropolitan that he ordained was a great fit and did quite well in Ethiopia. However, by year 4, the Queen of Ethiopia pressured him to ordain her brother as a bishop, and he, after initially refusing, relented, ordaining the brother in question to be a bishop. A bad idea, as immediately the prince, now a bishop, attempted to take charge of the Ethiopian church and sidestep the Coptic metropolitan. A series of palace plots then took place, where it ended with the metropolitan coming back to Egypt after being threatened with murder. That's the story that John got anyway, when he asked the metropolitan 
why he was back in Egypt. But the patriarch was not like any other patriarch. He had a degree of healthy skepticism and was familiar with how the palace worked in Ethiopia from his trading days. So he didn't just take the metropolitan word for what had happened. No, he secretly sent a delegation to talk with the Ethiopian king directly and figure out what really happened. A good move. As it turned out, the metropolitan left not because his life was threatened from a ballast plot. No, he left because he ordered that a priest be beaten unfairly. And when that priest died from his injuries, the backlash against him was so large that he could not walk in the street safely. At this, John immediately went to work fixing the diplomatic kerfuffle, involving the Sultan and ordaining another metropolitan. During this interaction, Al-Kamil fully appreciated the benefit of keeping Ethiopia as a trading partner, and was quite impressed with the leverage that John gave him in his dealing with them. The second metropolitan did very well in his role, dying peacefully toward the end of John's reign. And he, again, appointed a capable bishop, pushing back on the sultan and his chief administrator, a certain Abu Futh, a copt himself, who ran the finances of the army. You see, Abu Futh had his own pick for the office, a priest that he had sponsored and even lodged in his own house, a very controversial figure named Dawood, or anglicized as David, who was brilliant and well-learned, but had quite the ego, and tended to veer off the well-traveled road. You know, he was the kind of guy who may one day lead an Ethiopian army and come to Egypt, or at least break away and establish his own hierarchy there. So in John's assessment, Dawood was the worst possible fit. As he put it to Al-Adil, quote, this one is not fit, because his belief in God is corrupt, because he says concerning God what the Greeks say, and if he went to the land of Ethiopia, he would corrupt them, and he would make them Greek, and they would depart from my obedience and the obedience and the sultan, and perhaps he would incite them to fight the Muslims who are neighboring to them in the country, and much blood would be shed among them. And this would be on the conscience of the Sultan, but I and my people are innocent of it. For context here, the word quote-unquote corrupt beliefs were referring to the same issue of confession and communion that Morcus ibn al-Kumbur brought to the forefront 25 years or so earlier. The word, like ibn al-Kumbur, believed in the sacrament of confession and regular weekly communion, where the Coptic Church hierarchy, John included at this point of history, was against the practice of confession privately to a priest. You can go back to episode 88 to see who Ibn al-Kumbur was and what did he believe in. The Milkite Church, on the other hand, encouraged that kind of confession. And so, the accusation of turning Ethiopia, quote-unquote, Greek, stood on very flimsy ground, but still stood nonetheless. On the whole so, as we will see, 
the wood would have been a really bad fit for Ethiopia. Not necessarily because of his corrupt beliefs. No, it's really because of his personality. And John knew that too. But he was also savvy enough of an operator to put his opposition in words that the Sultan could understand. So yeah, like I said, he did quite well in his 20-year reign. Dying peacefully in 1216, and inaugurating a 20-year period where the Coptic Church had no patriarch at all. Why? Well, say hello to the adventures of Dawood, the same priest that we just mentioned, and the future patriarch Cyril III, also known as Cyril ibn Lala. You see, when John died, he had an heir in mind, a disciple of his. Unfortunately, as fate would have it, that disciple died just a few days before the patriarch, leaving the seat wide open for competition. And you know who was the most powerful copt at this very exact moment? Well, it was Abul Futh, the woods patron and sponsor, who pushed his case for Ethiopia just a couple of years earlier. He naturally pushed for Dawood to be the patriarch and made a very strong case to him to the Sultan, Al-Adil. The problem so, that John before he died also made his position clear and what he sought of Dawood. Further, due to the political nature of their offices, Abulfut and John generally disliked each other as they competed for the ear of the Sultan and his religious policy toward the Copts. They got along fine and worked together most of the time, but it was a dry professional relationship, rather than a warm and courteous one. Suppose Abulfut and Dawood had a lot of opposition to them within the church, if not because of Dawood's beliefs about confession, then definitely due to their history with Jean on the whole, a beloved figure. To make matters worse, the Wood's ego and ambition really did get in the way. One of the primary sources of this period was actually a very close friend of his, and he had this to say about him. Quote, I knew him to be a brilliant scholar, a good priest and a translator of languages. I only disliked the way he rushed into an outward display of seeking the patriarchy and his lack of avoiding the matter in his speech. I used to counsel him about that, but he did not accept the counsel. I would say to him, it is appropriate in that matter that the wise person make a show of not wanting it, and if anyone should speak about it in front of him that he disdained the speech, get up and go away from that place. This, making a show of being reluctant, is necessary only if he is not a righteous person. If righteous, being reluctant, expose his inner attitude and outward behavior. For this matter of the patriarchy is a venture into matters of terrible weight, an investment of authority over a great flock on whose account one would be judged. One should bear this matter only when one is invested with it. But he did not go back in his course, nor did he put his trust in God to give him the patriarchy. Rather, 
he put his trust in his own effort and endeavor. And so, very quickly after John's death, we had a situation where the Ballas and those who are in the Sultan's circle wanted one candidate, the wood the priest, and most of the frontline clergy and monks, loyal to John's memory and hostile to the wood's unconventional beliefs, wanted anybody but the wood. That latter group also had powerful friends, and they were led by Sir N. Ibn Abi Sulaiman, the personal physician of the Sultan's heir, Al Kamal, the guy who was really in charge in Egypt. And they, for the most part, had him on their side. So, it wasn't only a split between the Coptic elite. No, it was also a split between what the Sultan wanted in Syria, in the Wood's camp, and what Al Kamil in Egypt wanted. And Al Kamil really fought for this one, as he had a personal stake in the matter. You see, in one of his hunting trips, he met a certain holy man named Abiyar, who left quite an impression on him, healing him from a medical condition. So he wanted that holy man to be the patriarch, and so did many of the camp that was opposed to the Wood's nomination, as he had a very important quality. He was not the Wood. The issue finally came to a head when a certain brave fellow from Cairo named Al-Asad ibn Sarafo gathered a lot of those who were opposed to Cyril and essentially organized a petition to the Sultan that got him a meeting. There, he told Al-Adil, quote, It is not fitting that God permits you that you should make the wood patriarch over us to corrupt our religion and to make all the Copts of the land of Egypt Greek, and he will cause it to depart from the hands of the Muslims. Al-Adil so ignored them, telling Abu al-Futh to go ahead and ordain Dawood a patriarch. If the cops don't like him, then so be it. And Abu al-Futh went ahead with the planning, picking a day and a few bishops to do it. And but no one to him so, Al-Kamil had already decided that he would not let it happen. Egypt was his inheritance, and he would not let his father, the Sultan, do something stupid to ruin it. And so, he sent to the governor of Cairo, telling him, quote, If you enable Abu al-Fatih and his companions to set up for them a patriarch without my order, I shall hang you. And so, as the wood was getting ready to be ordained, literally walking to the church, the governor brought the garrison down to the church, arrested and then impaled a couple of innocent bystanders, leaving them on the entrance of the church to scare folks and Dawood himself from walking in. And it worked. Dawood got scared and left Cairo altogether, and so did most of his supporters. Several attempts were made later to ordain a patriarch, but they all failed. First, someone proposed a lottery where Dawood name would be there among two other candidates, but Dawood refused. Then, a compromise candidate, another layman from the government, who ran what amounted to be the treasury of the Sultan, was picked. 
but the Sultan vetoed out the candidacy, not wanting to lose him to the church. Finally, people just gave up and went along with their lives. What do you need a patriarch for anyway, right? And so, the Coptic church was left without a patriarch for the next 20 years, allowing for an institutional weakness that the church would never really recover from for the next few centuries. Next time, we'll briefly look at that crusade that aimed for Cairo, as well as what happens when you have 20 years of an empty throne. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next time.